Hey, hello. So, first Sunday in Lent, uh, just amazing that it's already here again. Uh, I, was, I was thinking back to a year ago. Uh, I think last year, Ash Wednesday was February 26th, something like that. So that was just like two weeks before the, the lockdown. And, and so just looking back at what was happening back then and what we were looking forward to and how long we thought this was going to last... And now here we're poised to have our second Easter you know, under restrictions of some sort. So it's just been a different kind of year. And uh, having Lent start again and Ash Wednesday come and go has just been a reminder to me. I don't know how it's been for you all. Um, just uh, kind of connecting dots here. And so we want to talk about Lent, but want to do it by also connecting the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Um, we're kind of... In a, in a thread, in a mode here, and I want to see if we can continue that on, but also weave in the importance of Lent for us liturgically and ritually. Two weeks ago, we were talking about how Jesus teaches, that he teaches much like a, a far eastern Zen master. Jesus is near eastern, he's eastern too. The east looks at things very different than the west does. But Jesus' teaching is designed more than to give us new data, more than to give us new information to think about. He's teaching to deconstruct the things that we already think we know. And this is a critical difference. He's there to deconstruct and trying with everything in him to get us to question and challenge our belief systems, the things that we are clinging to, the things that we hold dear, the things that we think are our programs for happiness or success or survival. He's trying to get us to empty ourselves completely. Paul called that the kenosis, the emptying that Jesus himself went through when he came into this life to teach us. And it's not about getting this data back in after we empty ourselves. It's about emptying ourselves so that we can really see the experience that we're having having at the moment and see it for what it is, not through the filter of everything that we think we know. Epictetus, the, the great Stoic Greek philosopher of the first century, just a generation after Jesus, he wrote that it's impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. Great line. It's impossible for us to learn what we think we already know. That's why it's so important for us to unlearn. But that doesn't happen naturally. We don't even want to give permission for it to happen at all, if you really think about it. Those things that we're clinging to, those things we think we know, that's like air to us, and so we're going to hold on dearly. But Jesus is telling us that we need to sell everything, give it away, and then we can come follow. That's what he's, he's trying to get us to understand this with all these crazy sayings. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Hate your father and mother, your sister and your brother, your children, and even your own life, which in his language means to prefer less. In other words, take the edge off of the allness that that culture placed on family, on tribe, on clan, on nation, on ethnicity. Because if you're not willing to let go of that as your survival, you can't follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. Again, family ties. You know, before I follow you, Lord, can I go back and bury my father and mother? Jesus isn't even giving that much of a, of a break because he's trying to get in and under. Not that you can't go back and do what you're supposed to do responsibly, but where are your mental, emotional, psychological ties, your spiritual ties? 
What are you looking at? He says, if you have ears to hear, hear. Here's something different. Here's something new. If your eye isn't Peshitta, clear, simple, true, sincere, if it isn't able to see clearly what is really there with the filter removed, then you're never going to be able to get to truth, to get to the freedom that that truth represents. Jesus' way is all of this. Jesus' way is the shape of this. Jesus is saying you need to pick up your cross daily. In other words, keep shedding everything that you think you are. Be willing to put it up there on the cross. Be willing to let it go. Be willing to sell everything that you keep accruing and collecting and and piling up in your life. Everything that's comfortable. Everything that's familiar. And everything that's limiting you from being able to see what this new truth is that is so radically different, it will never fit into the confines of your belief system. It has to be obliterated first. There's a, an article that I wanted to read. It comes from a few years ago. It comes from the business sector, which is a little different. How often do we read business things in here? But take a listen. Billionaire Ray Dalio founded Bridgewater, one of the world's largest and best-performing hedge funds. A true entrepreneurial success story, Dalio started his company in a two-bedroom apartment. He was a self-described ordinary kid and worse-than-ordinary student. 42 years after starting his company, he reveals one roadblock to success that is so ingrained in the human experience and in our very DNA, it's difficult to overcome. Dalio's advice? Be radically open-minded. Good decisions aren't necessarily the ones that stroke your ego. A good decision is what's best for you and your company. To make good decisions, argues Dalio, a person must have the ability to explore different points of view and different possibilities, regardless of whether it hurts your ego. So let me ask you this. Do you think you have an open mind? I mean, everybody thinks they have an open mind, don't they? I mean, you probably would ask her, yeah, I have an open mind, I'm open-minded. But are you really? According to Dalio, here are some cues that will tell you if you're truly open-minded. Closed-minded people don't want their ideas challenged. Open-minded people are not angry when someone disagrees. So how about you? Are you easily offendable? When, you're, uh, when your ideas are challenged, do you get upset? I mean, think about it truly. Take a look. Be ruthlessly honest. Think about the conversations you've had. And no dearth of conversations right now about things that are challenging, right, when it comes to politics and it comes to health issues and all the other things that are facing us that are so divisive. How much does your blood boil when you see something that goes against what you hold dear? Closed-minded people are more likely to make statements Closed-minded people are more likely to make statements than ask questions. Open-minded people genuinely believe they could be wrong. What a concept, huh? So how many questions do you really ask? How interested are you to query and see what someone else has to say? Or are you really just waiting to speak when the other person is talking? Something to think about. Closed-minded people focus much more on being understood than on understanding others. Open-minded people always feel compelled to see things through others' eyes. How much time do you spend 
you know, just making yourself understood. How important is it to you to make yourself understood? And how much time do you spend in the other direction? Closed-minded people lack a deep sense of humility. Open-minded people approach everything with a deep-scented sense that they may be wrong. How sure are you that you're right? Does that kind of define the way that you approach conversations with others? Dalio offers several recommendations to help you develop a habit of being radically open-minded. Among them, sincerely believe that you might not know the best possible path. That means, I guess, guys, we've got to ask for directions when we're driving, right? Dalio says that recognizing what you don't know is more important than whatever it is you know for sure or think you do. Recognize that decision-making is a two-step process. First, take in all the relevant information, then decide. People are reluctant to consider information that is inconsistent with their worldview or the conclusion they've already arrived at. Remember that you're looking for the best answer, not simply the best answer that you can come up with yourself. When two people disagree, there's a good chance that one of them is wrong. What if it's you? And if you're too proud of what you know, you will learn less, make inferior decisions, and fall short of your potential. I love when other disciplines, like science or business or whatever, come to the same conclusions you know, reach the same conclusions, come to the same truth as the scripture does, as our, as our spiritual teaching does. It's, it's just really a, taking separate routes, but coming to the same place. You know, it's very, very consolidating. What we're talking about here is the Buddhist concept of beginner's mind. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. But it's the attitude of openness, eagerness, a lack of preconceptions, even if you're already advanced in your training, even if you're already advanced in your field, that you can maintain that openness and eagerness and lack of preconceptions, that radical open-mindedness, that you can still see that there are things that others can bring to you. This is exactly where Jesus is trying to take us, to the place of beginner's mind. But there's a catch, and it's a big one. And unfortunately, most of us don't get beyond the catch. It's kind of a, a wilderness that we have to go into. Because between us, where we stand right now, and living that kind of grateful humility of beginner's mind, and that's really what it is. It's a grateful humility. It's a realization of where you are in relation to everyone else and God and creation and all that. But grateful. It's that anavim spirit that we are always talking about. Between us and that humility of beginner's mind lies the great doubt that we talked about last week. Jesus is trying to bring us into a kind of wilderness that deconstructs everything that we think we know until you just don't know anything anymore. You doubt all the things that you were taught before. You're terrified of the wilderness. We're all terrified of the wilderness. We're terrified of doubt, uncertainty. We'll do most almost anything to avoid that feeling, that place in life. But it's absolutely essential. Last week we were talking about the fact that we have been taught 
in church and pretty much in society in general that doubt is a bad thing. Doubt is actually a sin. Doubt is the opposite of faith. But here Jesus is actually creating it in us, engendering it in us, not allowing us to take our certainty, our supposed certainty, any further forward, to break that line right there and take us in another direction. It's so incredibly interesting how the church has been working against Jesus in terms of how we move forward. We have been taught to see Thomas, the apostle, as weak, as lacking faith, as a model of who and what we should never be. We call him the doubting Thomas because he wouldn't believe that Jesus was risen until he had put his hands in his wounds. The fact that he got a report from the other 11 was making no never mind with him because he needed his own personal experience. Actually, if you really think about it, and we talked about this last week, of course, Thomas is really our hero. Thomas is showing us the way past the catch of the great doubt. Every one of Jesus' followers doubted his resurrection until they had a personal experience with him. But Thomas was the only one honest enough about it to actually say what it was that he needed. He gets the news, and his mind is blown. Poof. He can't comprehend. It doesn't fit into his worldview. It won't get past his, his filter. Everything that he knows to be true is being challenged right now, and he can't process it. But see, the opposite of faith is not doubt because faith, biblical faith, is not about belief, not about mental assent or intellectual cognitive thought processes at all. Faith is about action. And the opposite of faith is actually certainty, the illusion of certainty. Why? Because it stops the action. You know, we always say, you know, it's always the last place you look. When you're looking for something, it's always the last place you look where you find it. Well, because when you find it, you stop looking. That's the point. If you think you found it, if you think you know it, you will stop looking. And when you stop, when there's no further forward motion, there's no more faith. Faith is action in the direction of what we are looking for, what we say we believe. And God is never exhausted. There's always something new. Thomas was never paralyzed by his doubt. He just tells us what he needs. He needs a personal experience to allow him to be convinced enough to actually trust what the people are telling him is actually true. Every other follower had one. Every other follower needed one. Thomas needs one. And guess what? So do we. We're going to need one as well. Okay, this is the first Sunday of Lent. It's a season of preparation for Easter, and Easter is coming right up. I think it's April 5th this year. So we have this 40-day period for Easter. Now, we think we know exactly what Easter is. If I asked every one of you, what's Easter? You'd be able to tell me, right? We think we know what it is. We think exactly what it's all about. But what would Jesus be saying to us right now if we came with that certainty to him about what this means he would be telling us, sell everything <laughs> that you have, give it away, and come follow me. And see from that place, 
from that place of emptiness, that place of openness, that place of lack of preconceptions, from that beginner's mind. See what you see as you follow me and see if you don't see something you've never seen before. This Easter image, this Easter concept that we hold in our minds is not the Easter that Thomas experienced. It's not the Easter that the first followers of Jesus experienced. Now, can we experience what Thomas experienced? Well, no, not in the same way. But that's where Jesus tells us that we're even more blessed if we can believe, trust, be convinced when we haven't seen in the way that he saw. There's an Easter experience that only you will ever know. There's an Easter experience that is so singular, so unique, that it's only between you and your God. You will have that experience if you can approach Easter with this openness, and then you'll never be able to transfer it to anybody else. You'll never really ever be able to express it to anybody else. It's just yours. But you will know that you will know that you are convinced of what you're convinced of. And you tell someone else, and they will doubt until they can have their own personal experience. This is what Jesus wants for each one of us, but we can't bring a filled vessel into the room and expect it to be filled with something different. All that is standing between you and that experience is this 40 days of Lent. This time of trial and testing into a rebirth, which is what the 40 symbolizes in Hebrew culture. That 40-ness is what we're dealing with right now. Lent is a church's symbol. Lent is the church's ritual enactment, if you will, of Jesus' 40 days in the desert, 40 days in the wilderness, It's also the ritual enactment of everything that every one of us must do if we are going to be able to really move into a transformed place. Be willing to let go of our safety net, descend into the great doubt, empty ourselves into beginner's mind to accept the personal experience of what this rebirth looks like. There's absolutely no other way to do this. Everything in the Bible, all the motifs of the Bible have the same shape of the journey. And Jesus' teaching, when you look at it from this point of view, couldn't be clearer. Lent is meant to ritualize Jesus' 40 days and his time of emptying by giving us the chance to do the same thing. And we talked about how faith is action. The action is paramount. If we really are going to fundamentally transform ourselves, even fundamentally rewire the unconscious part of our brains, it has to be through some action. But the action can be real or it can be ceremonial. The unconscious part of our brain does not know the difference. That's the beauty of it. We can do something ritually through Lent, and it really will be working toward that transformation, that rewiring. Every person of faith in the Bible that we read about had to do exactly the same thing. You think about Paul. From the high point of his Damascus experience and conversion and the scales fall from his eyes, he goes into Arabia for 14 years before he starts his, his first missionary journey. 14 years. It takes time for this radical new truth to actually filter down 
all the followers had the same process between Easter and, and Pentecost. It was a 50-day spread, but it really was also symbolic numbers, 40 plus 10. Could have been a really long time. Moses spends 40 years in the backwater of the Midian, and then 40 more years after the high point of leaving Pharaoh's Egypt in the wilderness before they can occupy the promised land. Noah, after the miracles that he sees in terms of the flood and in terms of the building of the ark, has to spend 40 days in the ark before there is dry land that he can go and occupy. Again, symbolic numbers here. Elijah, same way, after his mountaintop experience on Carmel, has to then spend 40 days, again, symbolically, in the wilderness before he has his experience on Mount Horeb. After all of these peak experiences, these epiphanies, these revelations, think about your own calling. Why are you here? Some of you have had great conversion experiences. Some of you have had peak experiences either on retreats, in prayer, in your lives. Have you backed those up with the fortiness? Have you moved through the consolidation period, a period of emptying, so that everything that you thought you knew at that moment has now had a chance to settle in, to really assimilate into yourselves? It takes a really long time to bring the spectacular mountaintop experience down into all of your daily moments that are considerably unspectacular. How do they relate? Let it filter down and permeate every breath that you take and quiet down into everyday wisdom that allows you to relate with people in a way that you never did before. Ever been around a new believer? And it doesn't have to be religious. <laughs> Think about the new believers you've known, whether it was religion, whether it was politics, whatever it happens to be. You know, They will wear you out with their superlatives, won't they? Everything is just the greatest thing, and this and that. Everything is spectacular, and ah, you know, reminds me of that line from the from the movie. What do you do when your real life exceeds your dreams? Keep it to yourself. They will wear you out. Everything is mountaintop to them because that's all that they know right now. Always looking for the next spectacular superlative, right? They just kind of leapfrog right over the flyover country, anything that is not up here and there. If you think about it, Paul was the same way. He comes 14 years in Arabia, 14 years in the wilderness, and then starts his first missionary journey. And what is he doing? He's fighting with everybody. He's fighting with the leaders at, at Jerusalem. He's fighting with Peter. He's fighting with the Judaizers. You know, he, he was still not fully baked yet. He was still fighting that personality. But by the end of his missionary life, by the end of his ministry, what is he able to say? From the prison, waiting for his execution, I have learned to be content in all my circumstances. That's a far cry from him wailing about the thorn in his flesh and asking for God to take it away. And all that. It takes time for these things to happen. It doesn't happen overnight. And thank God the scriptures are so honest with us to show us exactly what this looks like in all of our heroes. It's our heroes that had to go through the same thing that we do so that we know that it is our journey as well. 
I wanted to spend a little time, though, with Elijah, because Elijah's journey is just perfect in the way that it hits all the notes that we're talking about. And I don't know if you know much about Elijah, but if you want to, go to 1 Kings 17, 18, 19, and you'll get everything that there is about Elijah. But Elijah comes on the scene at a time when the new king, Ahab, has just married Jezebel. Jezebel is a, is a foreigner, and she has her ways with the king and converts the king to Baal worship, the Canaanite god, Baal, and, uh, and changes everything so that they tear down the Yahweh's high places and Yahweh's um, places of worship, and they build up Asherah poles and this and that and the other thing so that they are switching over from the worship of, of Yahweh over to the worship of these Canaanite deities. She goes as so, as, so far as to persecute anyone who is still practicing the traditional religion of Israel. These are in the northern kingdoms. And they kill the prophets until there's only a hundred left. And it's only because Obadiah secretes them in a cave that any of them survive. And it's at this time that Elijah is called out of his obscurity to go to Ahab and speak the truth to him. That because you have become so apostate, because you have fallen away from me, there's going to be a drought that is going to be huge and horrible and a famine to boot. And it's not going to end until I say the word. And so that is the setup to what's going on. At that point, Elijah exits the scene, and he's miraculously kept alive by ravens and by other miracles uh, in obscurity until God calls him again and said, okay, it's time. Go back to Ahab and tell him, you know, we, the, the drought will be lifted, but we need to come back. You need, and the people need to come back to me. And so he sets up this showdown on Mount Carmel. And he calls him, he calls Ahab, okay, here's the deal. You get all the people of Israel together, and you bring them to Mount Carmel. You get all of the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah, and come, and we are going to build two altars, and we're going to see which God shows up. And so that takes us right to Kings 18, starting at verse 25. So they're up on Mount Carmel, and Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, Prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called the name on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar that they made. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. you got to love this guy, right? So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And so now he's going to go in the next section. He's going to set his own sacrifice. He's going to take 12 stones and rebuild the altar. And then he's going to prepare the ox, cut it into pieces, and prepare everything that needs to be done for the sacrifice. And then he tells the people, 
he even cuts a, a moat, a trench around the whole thing, and he tells the people, bring me so many liters of water, pitchers of water, and they do. Pour it over the altar. Pour it on the logs. Pour it on everything. Now do it a second time. Now do it a third time, and the water is running down and filling the trench and filling the moat. He's really laying it on thick right now. He wants to make sure that everything is set up the way it needs to be set up. And when the actual showdown comes and he calls on the Lord, not by having to scream and rant and rave, but just calling on the Lord, the fire comes down and takes out everything. It doesn't matter how wet it was. It takes out everything. And the people, of course, are amazed. And they say, of course, Yahweh is our God. And then he brings the people and turns them against the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and they take them down by the brook, and they slay them all there. And when Jezebel hears about this, she is absolutely furious, as you can imagine. And she orders his execution within 24 hours. You're a dead man at this time tomorrow, she tells him. Now, what's Elijah doing at this point? Remember how arrogant he was, how cocky he was here? The great doubt sets in. He's terrified. He's freaked out. He's going to be killed. You know, where is God now when Jezebel's coming to get him? What he just did on Mount Carmel, and yet the doubt sets in. Think of the parallels in your own life. How many mountaintop experiences have you had that by next Wednesday have already faded and you're doubting it again? Did it really happen? Did it have the significance that I thought it had? This is the shape of it. This is what the scriptures preserve for us. So what does he do? Well, he runs. He takes his servant and he runs and he goes a full hundred miles south from Jezreel down to Be'er Sheba. And that's in the Negev Desert. If you looked at, at a map of Israel, Samaria, where he was in the tri- tribes of Israel, is north of the Galilee or pretty much across from the Galilee. Judah sits underneath and then Negev, that triangular point, sits underneath. So he's down here now. He, he, he flees. And then when he gets to Be'er Sheba, he dumps his servant, and we're going to pick right up at 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 4. He himself goes a day's journey out into the wilderness. And he, come, he came and he sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So here he is at the top of the Sinai Peninsula and he takes a journey that is 40 days and 40 nights all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. And Horeb, you may say, Mount Horeb? You've heard of Mount Sinai, I suppose. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are used interchangeably. Most scholars believe they're the same place used by different, different schools of thought who were writing the Torah. This is the same mountain where Moses saw the burning bush. This is the same mountain where Moses went up to the summit for 40 days and 40 nights and got the tablets actually written by the finger of God that he broke and then had to go back up to the summit again for another 40 days and 40 nights to get the replacement that he wrote himself. This is the same 
place where he rapped on the rock and water gushed forth to water the people when they were in despair. And now this is the place where Elijah goes. After 40 days in the wilderness, again, remember that symbolic number, a time of trial and testing into rebirth. This was a much longer period in his life. This is the place where the spectacular mountaintop experience had to come down and get filtered into his very being. He had to learn how it was that he lives with the God that he has seen, the God that he is understanding. Moses did the same thing. Forty years in the desert, remember, as a shepherd. We've talked about this, the shepherd consciousness that gets you know, just engendered in a person when you spend that much time in the wilderness by yourself with your flock. Imagine the silence of that. Imagine the stillness of that, the solitude, the loneliness. To be alone in a vast open space, attentive to your flocks, but no distractions, no diversions, not even other people. Moses was tuned to a hair's breadth so that when he saw that bush in the distance, he turned aside and said, this is something I need to take a look at. He had fundamentally been changed. By that time, by that 40-ness, he had been fundamentally changed. Now here's Elijah in the same place, learning to value what God values in the smallest of things, in the humility of vulnerability. There's no substitute for this. There's no substitute for suffering doubt. And I want to just point out that what suffering initially meant was to allow, to bear, or to permit. Remember in the King James Version when Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me? Ever wonder what the heck is he doing? Is he paddling them? What's going on? No, permit the little children to come to me. Allow them to come to me. If we are willing to bear our doubt, if we are willing to permit the doubt to be a part of our lives, to suffer the doubt, to become silent, to allow ourselves to be emptied out, then we can follow Jesus. That's what he says. Then you're worthy of, act of this journey. And there's no other way that this happens. And it's the same with Elijah. His 40 is in the same wilderness as Moses, on the same mountain as Moses, is able to grow from the arrogant, spectacular prophet of Mount Carmel into the silent cave dweller on Mount Horeb. Take a look as we pick up the story. 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 9. Then Elijah came there to a cave on Mount Horeb, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, so God said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. But Notice that Elijah stays in the cave at this point. 
And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. That sound of the gentle blowing is the key to understanding what is transformed in Elijah. The Elijah of Mount Carmel would have run out at the earthquake, at the fire, at the wind. That's what he understood about the spectacular nature of his God. But in his fortiness, in his time of Lent, in his time of quiet and stillness in the wilderness. Now it's the sound of a gentle blowing. And there's three Hebrew words there. Kol, damama, dacha. That is translated here as a gentle blowing. But if you take those words, kol means voice or sound. Damama means silent or motionless. And dacha means small or thin. So you probably heard this translated as a thin, small voice or a small, still voice. That's a literal translation. But it's also been translated as this blowing sound, as a whisper. But let's just try to imagine what this really means. What is this phrase, these three Hebrew words, trying to get across to us? Was it really a still, small voice? Was it a whisper? What was it really? You could just as easily translate these three words as small, silent sound. What's a silent sound? See, it's that paradox that Hebrews love, that Jews love, that is trying once again to get us beyond the rationality here. Something triggered Elijah to know that his God was present, but it wasn't really a sound. For my money, it was sheer silence, but with a presence that he was now attuned to, sheer silence that signaled to him pure presence of his Lord. Elijah had learned in silence where God really was and is. He had learned true nature, the true nature of God through his personal experience of emptying everything that wasn't himself, not who he really was, emptying all of that egoic mind, all of that stuff, and emptying everything that wasn't God as God presented. You know, the truth is that we fear death because it's the end of our egoic self. Everything that we know about ourselves is gone at the moment of death. But this is the way of Jesus. And the only way to the Father is to experience that loss of fixation on ourselves. Only when we are emptied out of everything that we think we are can we see God as God is. And we can see ourselves in God and know what that means for the first time. Lent is this time of fortiness where we can practice the little death because that's really what it is. Contemplative practice has been called the little death because it is a stepping away from everything that we know about ourselves, a stepping away from that egoic mind. 
And when we do that, it's kind of like that experience to stand outside of ourselves, to stand side outside of our egoic sense of ourselves is a frightening place to be. The Bible calls it the wilderness. Good a word as any. To denote, to symbolize, to, to give a metaphor for what it's like to stand outside of the comfort and the familiarity of what we think we know. But unless we can do that, unless we can get into that silent space, we can't go any further. Jesus is telling us this is the only way. I want to read you one last thing. And this is an article by an elderly man who's writing at the end of his life, or near the end of his life. He quotes first from uh, the great poet William Butler Yeats, Though leaves are many, the root is one. Though all the lying days of my youth, through all the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth. In a few days, I'll turn 78. When friends say they don't know what to give me for my birthday, I always respond with the same tired old joke they've heard from me before, which causes them to sigh, roll their eyes, and change the subject. Here's a peak that comes with age, a perk that comes with age. Repeat yourself so often that folks think you're getting dotty, when in fact you're fending off unwanted conversations. Question, what do you give a man who has everything? Answer, penicillin. I don't need gifts of a material nature, but I do need to remember a few things I've learned during my nearly eight decades on, your, on earth. The Yeats poem at the head of this column names something I don't want to forget. Actively embracing aging gives me a chance to move beyond the lying days of my youth and wither into the truth. If I resist the temptation to Botox my withering, my youthful lies weren't intentional. I just didn't know enough about myself, the world, and the relation of the two to tell the truth. So what I said on those subjects came from my ego, a notorious liar. Coming to terms with the sole truth of who I am, of my complex and often confusing mix of darkness and light, has required my ego to shrivel up. Nothing shrivels a person better than age. That's what all those wrinkles are about. Whatever truthfulness I've achieved on this score comes not from a spiritual practice, but from having my ego so broken down and composted by life that eventually I had to yield and say, okay, I get it. I'm way less than perfect. I envy folks who come to personal truth via spiritual discipline. I call them contemplatives by intention. Me? I'm a contemplative by catastrophe. I love that line, the contemplative by catastrophe. Age has stripped him down of all that he knew as a human, all that he thought of himself and his career and his position in life, all the certainty that he had of the understanding of life. And after all the withering of nearly 80 years, what was left was what was true. This is the way that it works. When we remove everything that is untrue, what is left is what's true. And that's what we're doing in a spiritual discipline. That's what we're doing in contemplative practice. Lent is the opportunity to become contemplative by intention, to generate this withering process that we're talking about. How do you do that? The traditional way was fasting. Fasting is a great way to kind of quiet things down 
to stop some of the distractions, to have a physical reminder of what it is that you're doing, a physical reminder of God's presence and your intention, your desire to be one with him. It's not the fasting itself. It's the place that it takes you as you engage in it. Abstaining from distracting and, and activities, uh, entertainment, other things that, again, are going to turn your attention outward rather than bringing it inward, bringing it down. Engaging in silent activities. All these have been done since time immemorial, and they are tools that we can use during this time of Lent. It's a daily commitment to the mindfulness that we talk about so often. Setting up morning quiet time, if you haven't already. Being more intentional about it. Mindless, mindfulness exercises that you can do throughout the day that will bring you back and connect you. Devotional walks or anything that you can think of. Journaling. This is the time to implement, implement those. This is the time during this 40-ness to use Lent as a liturgical excuse to turn down the volume to go into your internal wilderness, to step outside of the noise of your egoic mind and everything that it thinks it knows for 40 days. A symbolic time that will just be a fraction of what your life really needs, but it's a good start. It can be a launching pad, and it can inform us something about Easter when Easter arrives that we didn't know before. If between now and Easter we can be emptied out a bit more, Easter has a chance to come in in a personal experience that will show us something that we've never seen before. To thin out the things that we think we know, to let the experience of that great doubt take us somewhere to a personal experience of Easter. There are some materials here, and I know that many of you are watching from someplace else, but the bookmarks that I emailed out, bookmarks are here that have a prayer that could be something that you can start to use to center yourself, mindfulness exercises. If you want them, call me, email me. If there's a way that we can work together to make this next 40 days a real intentional practice that takes you on a short journey to somewhere different by Easter, that's what we're after. And so the question becomes, will you let Lent do its job on you? Will you let Lent be the liturgical time and place that it was meant to be? Will you, will we let Lent wither us just enough so that we can hear a still, small voice in sheer silence that informs us something we didn't know about our God and us and the relationship between the two. Let's pray. Father, once again, just can't help thinking, thanking you for our scriptures that paint these amazing pictures of what it looks like to move into your embrace. Thank you for the church, as flawed as it is and has been, for giving us the great liturgies and rituals that, again, dovetail with the great heroes of our faith 
to show us the way, show us a way. Help us to pick up where all that leaves off in our own lives. To find the desire within us to do something different, to move in a new direction, a deeper direction, to find the courage to step through our fears and our faith to step through our doubt to move into a closer relationship with you. Father, bless this Lenten period for us and for our families and everyone around us. We pray that we will find something new about this Easter in our own spirits. And thank you, Lord, for everything that you do to take us wherever we're willing to go. Thank you for your love and your constancy. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's stand.